All right. It is the top of the hour, 9 p.m. Eastern time where I'm at. I'm sure it's different uh, time zones where you're at, uh, possibly. Welcome to the Global Math Department. Uh, my name is Lena Taro, and I'll be your host tonight. Uh, tonight, we're going to be hearing from uh, pa Dr. Pamela Seda and Dr. Kendall Brown about seven ways to build your confidence as an equitable teacher. Would everyone please introduce themselves in the chat window telling us what you teach, where, and what your Twitter handle is, if you have one. And I actually know Bill Phil in the, the chat there. Welcome, Bill. And I recognize some other familiar faces. If you have a Twitter handle, feel free to type that in the chat as well. My Twitter handle is mathteacher24, and I tweet from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, teach at Moravian University. Before I introduce our speakers tonight, I'm going to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself on being friendly and supportive. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenters to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Uh, tonight, we have two speakers working together, uh, Dr. Pamela Seda and Dr. Kendall Brown. Dr. Pamela Seda is a veteran math educator with over 30 years of experience. She's a wife, a mother of four adult children, and the owner of Seda Educational Consulting, creator of the Van Game Math card game and co-author of the book, Choosing to See a Framework for Equity in the Math Classroom. She's held various positions in math education, including math teacher, instructional coach, college math instructor, and district math supervisor. She is currently the mathematics coordinator for Grifflin Spalding County Schools in Georgia. Dr. Seda is passionate about changing how students experience mathematics, especially those from marginalized groups and advocates for mathematics instruction that develops all students as mathematical thinkers and problem solvers. We also have Dr. Kendall Brown with us. Dr. Kendall Brown has over 30 years, 35 years of experience in mathematics education. He holds a bachelor's degree in mathematics, master's degrees in computer-based education and math education and a PhD in education. He was a secondary mathematics teacher for 13 years. He's been a professional development provider for schools and districts in Los Angeles County for over 25 years. He's currently the executive director of the California Mathematic Mathematics Project. He presents at local, state, and national conferences on mathematics education and writes articles for mathematics education publications. His research, research focuses on the impact of culture and identity on the ways that African-American males learn mathematics. He is the co-author of the book, Choosing to See a Framework for Equity in the Math Classroom. We thank both of you for being here tonight and I will turn the presentation over to Dr. Brown. All right, uh, thank you very much. We're very happy to be here. This is my first time uh, ever presenting for the Global Math Department, so we are very excited. Um, and our title, like it was mentioned, is going to be seven ways to build your confidence as an equitable teacher. Um, so uh, like um, we were introduced, um, you know, we both I, I am currently the executive director of the California Mathematics Project, and I've been engaged in mathematics education for over 35 years as both a classroom teacher, support provider, professional development provider. And as the current coordinator for Griffin Spalding County Schools, which is just south of Atlanta, I'm still just a teacher. I'm a teacher at heart. Now, my students may have changed, but I'm still a math teacher at heart. Okay, so we are going to um, engage in a little activity. What I need you to do right now is to go to student.desmos.com and type in 4CK. PKR. Go to student.desmos.com, type in 4CK PKR. There are some instructions. I'm going to just leave this up here for just a few moments. And um, 
to give us a ch give everybody the chance to get the code and then we'll switch to that screen momentarily. So if everyone can go ahead and type in student.decimals. And the information's on the sticky note at the top of the chat. Okay, I see that I've got people starting to get in. And so this is a matching activity. And you're just gonna go and try to match the cards together. It'll give you feedback. I'll give you a few more seconds and then I'll switch. Make sure everybody has a chance to get the code. All right. Okay, so what we should be looking at is cards to match. So if you look at the first screen, we should see there are black dentists, black professional athletes, black doctors, and black lawyers. So I'll give you a few minutes to match and see. Did this go here? I'm just arbitrarily putting some things together. Does it go that way or does it go here and here? If you click the next screen, it will give you some feedback. You have to move them together close enough to where you get the blue, blue uh, outside and then I'll give you some feedback. All right, and so as you maneuver th through, and you can check to see, then I want you to move to the last slide that says, what did you find surprising or interesting? What you find surprising or interesting? Thought doctors or dentists would be the most and not lawyers. That was something that surprised me too when I first did this activity. Media. Media seems to highlight black athletes in a way that makes us think there are a lot more athletes, black athletes than there are. Absolutely. Um, Yes, I was surprised to have my conjectures, assumptions were interfering with estimates on how, how many lawyers there were. Yeah, there's a lot of lawyers. I would have never guessed that either. Okay, well, um, I think we, as you can see that um, They were kind of surprising that even though we may, uh, even though I've been doing this work for quite a while, that um, I was really surprised that I, uh, at the numbers myself. So let's take a look at what the answers actually are. So there's 1,848 black professional athletes. That was actually the smallest number. And as you, I could see from the activity that we were doing that, that was really surprising to a lot of people. So feel free to put in the chat um, as to why do you think so many of us were so off base? Um, you know, I, I know somebody mentioned something about the media um, and that, that played a role. Jennifer, all right, you got it right. <laughs> Kudos to you. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Somebody, as somebody said, media put so much emphasis on black athletes that we fail to realize there just aren't that many athletes in, at all. There's just not that many professional athletic positions 
together. But I think in doing this activity, you can see that sometimes media activates certain stereotypes and bias that we are oftentimes not even aware of how they operate. All right. So um, our focus in this presentation is on equitable teaching. And so, you know, that raises the question, why do we need to engage in equitable teaching practices? Right. And, you know, one of the reasons is that we need to eliminate those stereotypes about um, all, all groups of students if we want to be equitable teachers. Okay. So, um, so we talked about in the title, we talk about what are seven practical ways that you can build your confidence as an equitable teacher. And so here is a, is a framework and it's a way to think about how can I be more equitable? And there are seven of them, include others as experts, be critically conscious, understand your students well, use culturally relevant curricula, assess, activate, and build on prior knowledge, release control and expect more. And we're gonna go into a little bit more detail about each one, but if you can see the acronym down the middle, it's ICU CARE. And really boils down to it, it's our students knowing that we care about them is what's gonna help us uh, become more equitable teachers. All right, so the first principle is include others as experts. And that means creating classroom environments that extend beyond the teacher as the sole authority to develop competence and confidence in others as experts, including the students themselves. You know, math class often operates like a debate where the teacher's the judge, the student who gets the most answers correct is crowned the winners while everyone else is considered a loser. And we're arguing that instead of a debate, math class should operate more like a dialogue where everyone feels seen and heard so that all students are able to develop competence in terms of who's perceived as the smartest and their confidence should be able to um, be built so their perception of their ability to get good results in math is strengthened. And our definition of expert is anyone who can contribute to the knowledge of the group. Therefore, any one of your students can be an expert given the opportunity. And so one of the quotes that we have in our book is build a community of experts, not a cadre of rule followers. All right, so the next one is be critically conscious. So we hit the I and this is the C. Um, and we define being critically conscious as taking the time to understand how negative stereotypes impact your students and actively work to erase the effects of those negative stereotypes on the educational outcomes of marginalized students. And so there's two parts. It's taking the time to understand, that means seeing, and then choosing to do something with the knowledge that you see. And so there are actually three basic ways that stereotypes actually do impact our students. One is stereotype threat, and that's just a threat of being evaluated, judged by, or treated in terms of a negative stereotype. And it often causes individuals to perform worse in a domain in which the negative stereotype exists. So for example, um, if students are taking a test and they're told that it's a measure of their intelligence and the very first thing that they check is your race, and they say it's a mark of your intelligence. The, the research has shown that African-Americans in the group that had to check their race and was told it was an intelligent test actually scored lower than the African-Americans in the control group. Um, it didn't just not only work with uh, African-Americans, if it was females, if females were told that this is intelligence test or math test, uh, intelligence of your math ability, um, females scored lower. Um, it works with athletics. They were shown that if they were told, oh, this is a test that measures your athletic ability, um, uh, white males would oftentimes score lower than black males. So stereotype is, uh, has been very well researched and um, that it can negatively impact the performance of those who the, the stereotype has been triggered. 
Pamela, uh, I'm going to uh, restart your slides because somebody um, has told me in the private chat that like they think that there's an issue with the slides, like it's frozen on one of the slides. So I'm going to restart. It's I don't I don't see it that way. I see it advancing, but um, I'm going to just uh, okay. reshare re your slides again. No problem. So let me just let me just do that one second here. All right. So it should be back there. So hopefully that fixed whatever the problem was. Great. All right. And so the other um, impact can be that sometimes students internalize those stereotypes. If they hear these stereotypes over and over again, sometimes students say, well, if this is how you believe about me, then I might as well become that. And there's research that actually supports that as well. Um, and then the last thing is um, sometimes students, it would just produce a decreased interest in studying math. And as we talked about the activity before, if the media is constantly showing that there are athletes and there are plenty of African-American athletes and we don't recognize how many African-American lawyers there are or doctors or dentists there are, then if there's a stereotype out there, many African-American students will go and think that will, will erroneously think they have a better chance of becoming an athlete than they do a lawyer, which is, if you just look at the numbers, is simply not true. Um, but so being critically conscious is not only seeing the negative stereotypes and how they impact your students, but actively making a choice to do something about it. And as I can see that all of you have chosen to uh, participate in this webinar. So I'm convinced that everybody in this audience is already committed to making that difference for their students. So critically conscious says, if you don't see the problem, you can't solve the problem. All right, so the next principle is understand your students well, learn about your students, their families and their communities for the purpose of improving instruction and really avoid making assumptions about students. When we understand our students well, we see beyond their labels and beyond the statistics to the variety of talents, strengths, and skills we might be able to draw upon to make mathematical mathematical connections and improve instruction. And so one of the strategies that we use to understand our students well is having them to write math autobiographies where they um, talk about what their experiences have been in mathematics. And, you know, I've done this activity with both students and adults and oftentimes uh, a mathematical autobiography with an adult will oftentimes reveal a lot of uh, uh, math trauma. I mean, I've had adults talk about, they can remember the exact moment when they turned off in math. It was when they were in third grade and they had to do that timed multiplication test and they just couldn't complete a hundred multiplication problems in a minute. And they've always felt like a failure ever since then. Right. And so it's important that we understand what have been the students experiences, both positive and negative, so that, um, you know, we don't make assumptions and we can either, you know, try to mitigate the negative experiences and build on the positive experiences. Right. So spend more time studying your students rather than studying their statistics. All right, so we've done I see you, and this is the second C, which stands for use culturally relevant curricula. And the way we define that is to use instructional materials in ways that help students see themselves as doers of math and help them overcome the negative stereotypes and messages regarding who is mathematically smart. And I often think about what are those images that we have about people who are mathematicians or people who are good at math. I think most of us can think about this. It's probably, if you think about a mathematician, you probably can think of somebody who looks like Einstein, white male, crazy looking hair, or Urkel with the um, pocket protectors. And so there's this image that mathematicians are nerdy, socially inept, and most kids don't identify that. They don't want to be that. So for them to um, think that, oh, they could be something that requires a strong mathematics background seems very distant for them. And so I include this picture here 
Um, it's an event that was um, sponsored by the National Organization of Minority Architects. And, you know, all these people are architects. My daughter is the one that's there in purple. And I do that because I wanted to share a story that, you know, my daughter in my house, I was a math major. My husband was a computer science major. So math and science came easy uh, for all of our kids. Um, but my oldest daughter was also very artistic. And I made the suggestion to her probably when she was in ele elementary school, oh, I think architecture would be such a great uh, job for you. And, you know, my daughter was like, no. And I think she said no just because mommy said it, because what does mommy know when you're in elementary school? But um, so she actually was in Girl Scouts and they took a field trip and she actually got the chance to hear a black female architect. And that was sometime in middle school. She made the decision then, I'm going to be an architect. I'm going to go to Georgia Tech and I'm going to become an architect. And she did. And even though she grew up in a house with an educator and with a household of people who were very mathematically minded, it wasn't until she saw someone who looked like her that she thought that architecture was something that was for her. And I just say all that to say representation really does matter. So it's important that you make sure that all students can see themselves reflected in the curriculum. All right, so we've done I, C, U, C, and this one is A, assess, activate, and build on prior knowledge. This means value the prior knowledge that students bring to the classroom, both personal and cultural, and leverage that knowledge as a resource for creating new knowledge. And so um, the reason this is so important is because oftentimes, because of stereotypes, when we see certain behaviors from students, we will automatically assume that, oh, this is, this is not, uh, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about this. They just automatically assume that they don't know anything. And so we'll go and reteach them everything because we'll, we're assuming that they don't know anything. Um, and, the, and the thing is that no one comes as a blank slate. Every person knows something about a topic. Even if it's informal knowledge, there's something that they know. And it's important for us to assess and activate whatever that prior knowledge is so that we can make connections. And we know that that's how the brain remembers um, and that's what we need to do. So um, I have this story that I share in my book where I talk about um, how I was teaching college and I was teaching this class called uh, Math Model, uh, Introduction to Math Modeling. And it was a freshman level course for people who didn't need to take ever take another math class again. It was a terminal math course. And, um, and so I was supposed to be teaching a lesson on piecewise functions. And the example from the textbook was health insurance. And they were going to be talking about the fact that when um, you, at the beginning of the year, that 100% of your, um, you pay 100% of your bill, medical bill, until you meet your deductible. And then when you've met your deductible, then you only pay 20% um, of your bill. And health insurance pays 80%. And then after you've reached your plan maximum, then you pay 0% of your bill. And so if you were to graph that, it would be a piecewise function. I had all these tables, um, Excel spreadsheets, graphs ready to go. I was armed with all of that. And I went to my class to start teaching it. And I didn't get probably maybe two minutes into your hand goes up. What's a deductible? How do you know how much you're supposed to pay? I spent the vast majority of the, of the class trying to explain how insurance works to 18 and 19 year olds. And when I realized it was such a fail, I walked back sheepishly to my office trying to think about, okay, where did I go wrong? And I realized 18 and 19 year olds know nothing about insurance and why it's a real life example whose real world, it wasn't their real world. So I was not able to connect the math to anything that made sense to them because I didn't consider my audience. 
So the next day I came back and I said, here, I drew a picture of a piecewise function. And I said, this is what I was trying to teach the other day. Can you give me examples? And somebody says, oh yeah, like our cell phone plan. Now I know I'm telling my age now because this was a while back when you paid by the minute. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's like a cell phone plan that you pay so-and-so a flat rate until you reach over your minutes and then you pay a certain percentage per minute. And then somebody said, well, it's like our tuition. You know, we pay so many credit hours um, until we reach a certain, until we get to 12 hours. And then after 12 hours, you can take as many credits as you want and it's still a flat rate. And I was just so pleasantly shocked at how my students were able to um, share with me things that were able to connect to them. And that's when I learned that lesson about how important this is, that you have to consider um, the knowledge of your students. And if you just start with what you think, you may crash and burn like I did. <laughs> so the saying for this is, instead of worrying about what students don't know, find out what they do know and build on it. I wish I had known that lesson before I taught that piecewise functions lesson. All right, so the next principle is release control. Empower your students to take ownership of their learning by focusing on sense-making and allowing them to make choices about things that are important to them in the classroom. Releasing control is not about letting students do whatever they want to do in the classroom in the name of freedom and liberation. It must be coupled with high expectations. Teachers need to be gate openers and not gatekeepers. So two things have to happen for this redistribution of power to occur. First, teachers need to shift the focus of mathematics instruction away from answer getting techniques to focus on sense making. And then teachers must give students choices about what they learn and how they learn in the classroom. So one of the stories that's in uh, the book talks about Akil, and Akil was uh, a tenth grade, a high school, uh, a sophomore in high school, and Akil was taking um, pre-calculus. He got a C the first semester and a B the second semester. The policy at Akil's high school was that in order to take calculus, AP calculus, you had to get a recommendation from the pre-calculus teacher. And so when Akil approached his teacher uh, to ask if she would sign the form, she told him, no, she wouldn't sign it because he wasn't mature enough. And so Akil, you know, told uh, his parents what happened. And so his parents approached the administration and had a conversation with uh, the principal who determined that regardless of what the teacher did, uh, Akil would be enrolled in the AP Calculus course. But in the meantime, Akil went back to the teacher and argued his case as to why she should sign the paper and gave reasons why and convinced her to sign the paper. Now, luckily, Akil had the agency to go back and challenge his teacher and uh, fight for you know what it is that he wanted. Not all students have that same amount of agency, right? So we really have to, and you know, and I, I also think about what did what did the teacher have to lose by signing that paper and allowing the Akil to go on to you know that next uh, that next level of course? I mean, this whole idea of they uh, the teacher just decided to be a gatekeeper, right? Um, so anyhow, Akil did go on. Uh, to take AP Calculus, and he was successful, and he's currently a senior at Tulane University. Akil also happens to be my son, okay? Um, so it's a very sobering fact that many of our students learn in spite of us. So never forget that students drive the learning, not us. And then the final principle is expect more. Hold high expectations for all students and avoid deficit views of diverse learners. We need to identify students in terms of their strengths rather than their weaknesses. When we're looking at student work, we need to start with what does the student know as opposed to what, what did they do wrong, right? Um, Lisa Delpit talks about this whole idea of being a warm demander where you hold students to really high standards 
but you give them the social and emotional support that they need to um, to meet the standards, right? And you know, Joe Bowler uh, and others talk about this whole idea of wise feedback. So often in mathematics classrooms, students get their test papers or their homework assignments back with big red C's and X's on it and no real feedback that's going to help them move forward. And so uh, the recommendation is to, you know, uh, point out what the student did correctly, pose a question to push their thinking, but then to add the sentence that says, I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. And what the research shows by adding that extra sentence at the end, you dramatically increase the number of students who will revise their thinking and, and uh, turn in their work. And so this also is con um, related to a story that's in the book, um, uh, in the chapter about Expect More, about um, Melvin. And Melvin, uh, so I was a supervisor, I was supervising a, um, a first year teacher and um, I, when I went, she was a science teacher. And when I went into her classroom, I'd say there were about 30 students, about 28 of them were Latinx and two of them were African-American. There was an African-American female and an African-American male who I'll call Melvin. And African-American, all the students were sitting in groups. The African-American female was working in a group the only person who wasn't in a group was Melvin. Melvin was sitting to the side at a uh, desktop computer working by himself. And so, you know, when I saw that, I kind of asked the teacher why, you know, Melvin was sitting by himself. And she said, well, you know, he doesn't really participate in the classroom activities. So I'd rather have him over here, you know, not disrupting than, you know, disrupting the class. And so, um, the students that day were working on their lap on an assignment on their laptops and the teacher gave the class this assignment to do and she expected the students to work in their groups on the assignment. And so she gave the assignment, was walking around the room, but really got focused on helping one particular group. And while she was doing that, there was a group of four Latinx males who were struggling with the assignment. And so Melvin got up from his desktop computer, came over to the group, this group of young Latinx boys and showed them what they were supposed to do in the lesson and how they were supposed to do it. And then went back to his desk. The teacher didn't see any of that because she was so involved with the group of students that she was working with. So, you know, I finished the observation and I, as I was leaving the class, I passed by Melvin and I said, I saw what you did. And he looked up at me with these big eyes. What are you talking about? What do you mean? And I just kind of kept on walking. I didn't even respond to him, right? But that's just an example of, you know, a, a student who was very capable of doing the work, but because of the low expectations of the teacher, um, she had put, positioned him as a student who wasn't capable of doing the work. And so it's really important that teachers really take the time to know what their students are capable of um before they just you know relegate them to uh you know kind of uh you know the the, the hinterlands of the classroom right? all right so that's worth the um those were the seven practical tips i see you care i see you c-a-r-e so now we're going to give you the chance to do a little work here if we've done our work we're going to give you a chance to do a little work so what we're going to do is I'm going to share an activity that falls in one of these. I see you care. And your job is to put in the chat which principle do you think is at play when we share the activity. So um, one activity or one thing that I've done is I've had a word problem. So let's say I have a word problem. This word problem I just did recently. I got off the Internet. It says a bat and a ball together cost $1.10. Uh, the bat cost a dollar more than the ball. How much did each one get? Uh, how much was each one separately? So um, I decided to take that problem. And I remember I had some some of my students who liked to like to braid hair. So I changed the context. Instead of talking about a bat and a ball, I was like, well, uh, you own your own hair salon and 
you charge $110 for a hairstyle and $5, I mean, $10 for some braid spray. And I'm sorry, I messed that up. You charge $110 for a hairstyle and the braid spray. How much do each one cost separately? So I changed the context of that problem to something that I felt like my kids would be interested in. So which of these principles do you think are an operation, which is I-C-U-C-A-R-E and why? Well, you don't have to say why. We can do that later, but put that in the chat, please. Which one do you think it is? Okay, I see Mimi. She's the first one. Thank you, Mimi. All right, yep. Catherine, you noticed that too. Understanding your students well. I had to know that my students like uh, to braid their hair. So that's something that I had to listen to my students talk. And um, oftentimes I had to listen to my students talk outside of math class or like not about math to figure out things about them. Yes. So I agree with those, both of those things, use culturally relevant curricula and uh, understand your students well. So Kendall, do you have an activity that you want to put out there or? I wasn't prepared for this. I can come up with another one if you okay. want me. I'll do another one and I'll let you come up with another one. Um, so there's this other activity that I've done. I've, it's called Find Someone Who. I just take a, a worksheet of problems. It, it could be any problem. It could be a textbook, but it's just a worksheet of problems. And instead of having students work the problems, what I do is I switch it up a little bit and I have students go ask someone to explain to them how to do the problem. So they don't write their own answer or own solution. They go to someone and have them explain the solution to them. So they only write what somebody explains to them. Once both of them agree that the, the problem is worked correctly, the explainer then signs the problem. And then they go to another person and find ask someone else to explain uh, the problem. So Basically, everyone is an explainer and explainee, right? A teacher and a learner. Um, I do allow myself to be a teacher for only one problem. I said you can only use me once. You can't use me for more than one problem. Um, but oftentimes, I might pick out the student that I know struggles the most or maybe a student who's a low-status student in my class. And I'll say, do you know how to do this one? It might be the hardest one. And I'll, I'll explain to them the hardest one. And then I'll point out to the class, you know, Jeffrey, he knows how to do number 12. If nobody knows how to do number 12, Jeffrey knows how to do number 12. And I, um, I've, I've, I've used that activity that way. So that's called find someone who. So I see, Bill, you're already on top of things. You put in a guess. Let's see what other guesses we see. Wow, release control. Include others as experts. Mm -hmm. Yes, I thank you um, for for the last for Lee for saying the last one about a lot of students don't see themselves as experts. Expect more. Yes, expecting more that means we expect students to teach each other rather than us having to be the teachers all the time. Absolutely, thank you. So as you can see, one activity can hit several of the principles, which is why I think it's important that this really is a framework. It's a way to think about your instruction. So any activity that you do, you're thinking about, how can I incorporate these pieces to make my, my classroom more equitable? Thank you. Uh, Kendall, you have one? Um, let's see. Um, so one of the activities that we describe in the book is uh, an activity that looks at different communication styles. And so we have uh, the students choose between a hawk, a turtle, a tiger, and a rabbit. And they choose which one of those communications, uh, which one of those animals best reflects their communication style. And then they get together in groups to talk about what are the characteristics of that particular communication style, how they interact with all of the different other communication styles. And then we talk, and then they talk about what's the best way 
for each one of the other communication styles to communicate with them. So where would that activity, which, which, which one of the principles would that activity fall under? Okay, understand your students well. Any other ideas? Is there another principle that that one might? Yeah. Yeah. That's activate and build on prior knowledge, right? Okay, yes, definitely you would build on this because you can use that to think about how you might, which students you might group together, excuse me, based upon their communication styles, right? So definitely. So uh, another activity that I used to always love, I used to love doing it with my students. They always love doing it. But when I do it in workshops, the teachers always love it too. And it's called Math Password. And for those of you who are old enough to remember the game show Password, <laughs> it works a lot like that. But I would um, have strips of papers that are, had vocabulary words on it. And um, so let's say you'd be in groups of four. So you'd have the first person that would give a clue and then the other three would try to guess. And so the word might be slope. And so I'm giving clues as to what slope is. Of course, you can't use any part of the word in giving the clues. And then whoever guesses the word correctly gets that vocabulary card. And then you give the set of cards to the next person. So everyone has a chance to give the clue. So the next person, they have their card, they uncover it, they give clues, and then whoever guesses that one, they get that card, and then it goes, and so you pass it around, everyone has a chance to be a clue giver until all the cards are used um, used up. And um, so what do you think, which principle would that activity yeah, y'all are already on top of it. Before I even tell tell the activity, y'all are putting the answers in there. <laughs> I see we got the gifted group here. Anybody else? What whether what um what activity do you think that math password, which principle do you think math password falls under? Yes, yeah, so it's definitely, I've used it as an assessment. Um, I've used it, it can assess what kids know, what do they, what, sometimes it's even informal knowledge. Sometimes they may not have a clue, math, a clue about the math understanding of the word, but it reminds them of something. So, you know, if they say slope, they might say skiing. That has nothing to do with, um, with, you know, rise over run. But that lets me know, okay, well, I might be able to connect when I get ready to teach the lesson on slope. I can connect that to something they already know about a mountain. Um, I also use it to activate prior knowledge that some of them might have forgotten. But in the activity, they learn it's like, oh, yeah, I remember this. It helps bring uh, to their knowledge things that may have been buried back there. And then it also helps build prior knowledge. There were students who might not have had a clue about a word. Um, and then in doing the activity, they listen to their classmates, they uh, learn. And it's and it's a very um, non-threatening um, way to be able to learn vocabulary. All righty. Well, y'all have done a great job of identifying those activities. So I'm going to um, allow you to now ask some questions. So what questions do you have? Um, I'll say one that I saw in the chat and actually it's because I put it there because I'm kind of curious, like, um, you know, for students to see themselves as experts, um, you know, sometimes that can be a struggle, especially if they've had those issues with, um, you know, the fast facts, you know, math tests that they struggled with. And, you know, so, you know, for the student that is really hesitant to share um, because they're just um, paralyzed by fear over being wrong, even though they have good things to contribute. Um, you know, how, how do you work with students like that? 
You want to start, Kendall, or you want me to start? You can start. Okay. <laughs> so first thing I think it's important is that we need to redefine what it means to be an expert. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned earlier, an expert is anyone who can contribute knowledge. You know, the traditional uh, view of expert is I know everything and that we know no one knows everything. So that's the first thing is to redefine. If you have something to contribute, um, then you can be an expert. That's the first thing. Um, and the second thing is that create those structures so that giving information and receiving information is everyone's responsibility. Like create that community of learners so that everyone understands that I'm a, I'm, there are times I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to teach what I know, even if it's one thing, I can teach that. And there's times that I'm going to be a learner in receiving. And that's one reason I like that activity, find someone who, because it normalizes giving help and getting help. And if I find that student, um, that low status students who struggled, you know, maybe that quiet student that doesn't see them as, as an expert, and I make sure that I teach them how to do the hardest problem and they understand how to do the hardest problem, it really builds their confidence that when they have the opportunity to teach that problem to some of the, you know, high flyers per se. So that's the other thing. And then thirdly, I would say, well, it's still connected to structures, but um, is create collaborative groups. And there's a lot of strong research that comes from um, Dr. Liliadal's work, the author of Building Thinking Classrooms about uh, visibly randomized groups. And that if you change groups every day, students will then eventually learn to give and, and receive knowledge on a regular because that's the natural order of the classroom. And there's lots of research that says that students, the, the high achieving students and the low achieving students, they all learn in that um, environment to both give and take information. Yeah, and you know this, typically in mathematics, who's considered smart is who can perform procedural uh, calculations with speed and accuracy, right? And um, so unfortunately, that's what's been um, kind of perpetuated in mathematics education about who's good at math. And what I found is when you start using more open-ended types of tasks that don't have some set solution strategy to it, that that kind of levels the playing field. Because I've seen low status students solve some of these open-ended problems uh, better than the high status students, right? So um, it's like Pam was saying, redefining what it means to be good at math. That be, and so we've got to really rethink um, things like uh, time tests, right? And um, that, you know, there's some kind of time limit on, on your knowledge, right? We've really got to rethink some of those kind of traditional practices in the math classroom. So I see Jennifer has a question on um, tips on engaging parents. So that's interesting. It's funny. I was just I just met with our parental engagement liaison in our district just today, and we're planning parent community engagement meetings. And the what we're planning on doing is engaging them in cooperative, collaborative problem solving. I think the challenge is. People have certain beliefs, just like we said, we have to redefine what it means to be an expert. People have beliefs that are based on their experiences. And if we want to change their beliefs, they're not going to change unless their experiences change. So if all parents have known was teacher get up there and, and give these clear explanations, the teacher, the students take notes and, and reduplicate those procedures. If that is all they've experienced, for you to tell them something different, doesn't compute. It, it it doesn't fit within their schema. So what we have to do is we have to provide those new experiences. And so my plan is, is to engage them, put them in those visibly random groups. We're going to do some math, some non-curricular tasks, mm -hmm. some math problems that are accessible, those low floor, high ceiling tasks, um, and have them working together um, 
me facilitating and modeling for them what effective math instruction looks like. And then debrief and reflect and say, okay, what were you doing as students? What was I doing as your facilitator, as your teacher? What was the learning environment? How did that feel? And, um, and I think that's how you engage in parents. We really have to provide them new experiences as well. And then I think we have a chance to then change their beliefs so that then their actions can change so that we can get different results. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about in the book uh, is the teach math program uh, where they did, uh, it was a NSF funded program where uh, a group of researchers were really trying to look at how to engage families. And what they did was community walks, right? So they went into the community where the students live and walk the neighborhood to try to find examples of mathematics being used in uh, everyday life. And one of the lessons that they developed was uh, focused around the lavanderia or the laundromat, right? And so they came up with some really, you know, some grade level um, uh, appropriate questions for students to think about in terms of, you know, the cost per load of washing and if you have this many loads, how much is it going to cost? If it costs this much to wash and this much to dry, you have these many loads, how much is, is it going to cost you to do the laundry? And so it helped both the parents and the students understand the ways that mathematics is used on a regular basis in the community. And so it, again, it supported the both the parents to help them understand more of the mathematics. And, and help them to realize that, you know, they use mathematics in their daily life on a regular basis and relevant mathematics, right? And also helps the students to see that mathematics is all around them and that their parents actually do engage in mathematics, right? So I see Rebecca has asked a question about um, using this with administrators to think about detracting systems. And so administrators have come through the same traditional educational uh, math educational uh, structures as parents. And I think they have to have new experiences as well. And um, unfortunately, there aren't a lot of spaces to where we have administrators doing mathematics, right? But we have to create those spaces. And so I think if we help administrators see and experience effective math instruction, then you have a chance to then challenge those beliefs system because there's a belief system that undergirds tracking mm -hmm. and that belief system is that the smart kids are held back by the low achieving kids and if we really want to to for smart kids to excel we we have to separate them that that's that belief system um and in a traditional setting where you are just mimicking procedures and you're listening to a teacher talk there's and there's no interaction between or no mathematical discourse there's no collaboration that makes sense but if if administrators can see that low achieving students high achieving students special ed students all a mixtures that that diversity actually is a strength and they see kids learning and engaged in ways that they weren't engaged before, then they can answer the question. Then they have to be left with the question, why do we need track classes? Like how do we, why do we, why do we need that? And so I believe that we have to create structures in our schools and in our systems so that tracking no longer serves the need. Right. And, you know, so San Francisco Unified is an example of a school that has really done a school district that's done a really good job in terms of detracking. Um, there's no acceleration at middle school. All students start ninth grade in algebra one and acceleration doesn't really there aren't any opportunities for acceleration until after geometry. Right. Um, and it's been, you know, a huge journey. But, you know, when I talked, uh, Lizzie Hull Barnes is the math coordinator for the district. And what she says that she's been saying to parents who come 
and you know try to push back on the idea is that you know the old system led to racialized outcomes and that's unacceptable we we just can't accept that and we refuse to continue with the system that leads to these racialized outcomes right um but you have to understand there is a huge um movement uh, or contingency or constituency of parents who like tracking they like for their students to be you know the the privileged ones the chosen ones those few people who make it into that one AP calculus class at the high school. So a lot of work has to be done to really communicate, just like Pam was saying to parents that your children are not going to miss out on anything. They're still going to be able to get into college, but we want it. We want that for all students. Right. So it's a real it's it's kind of a moral uh, imperative that we're talking about. Right. So I see that. Juan has a question about online class. You have 35 to 40 students in an online class. Any tips or suggestions? So um, one suggestion that I have is I say, this is the one tool that you need in an online class, and that's Jamboard. Jamboard is a wonderful tool. It's a collaborative space to where I think you can have up to 100 people at one time on one Jamboard. I think I've been in a conference that when it was over 100 people, it kind of got a little glitchy, but obviously you don't have that many. Um, and, and so then you can do breakout rooms and have students collaborate. So um, Peter Lilliedahl talked about the fact that three was the ideal number to maximize the number of students who were thinking. But in an online environment, he said five was. So you can actually randomize, visibly randomize your groups so that five are assigned to a group and you can put five kids on a jam board and you can have them working problems collaboratively. They can talk about and discuss it um, in a breakout room. Or if, if you, if it, it just depends on what the problem, if it's a brainstorming session, you know, that's the thing about jam board. You can actually just put ideas on a post-it note and just put them out there. And lots of different people can brainstorm ideas before you even really get into a, a problem. So, um, that's the, those are the two major suggestions I have for online is create that collaborative space using Jamboard. Um, Desmos uh, is also a, another tool that you can, it, it, it's not quite as interactive as Jamboard, but when people put in, just like you just did um, today, sometimes when you put a response in, then you'll see two or three other people's responses. So that's another way for the interaction to happen between students. Right. I, and I agree. Uh, definitely the use of breakout room. I mean, what the problem is, we've been spending all this time over the last 20 or more years really trying to get students to collaborate with one another in a face to face classroom and then we're put online. And so the challenge has been how do we continue that collaboration? So I would agree the breakout rooms, Jamboard. Uh, I've been uh, seeing a lot of teachers use Padlet as a, a format to get people to share their ideas and share thinking. Um, Nearpod and Desmos have these, these um, functions that I like where, you're, where students can only advance so far through the slides and you kind of control how far they can advance. So that allows you some amount of control. And I definitely agree with the Desmos because not only can you control how they advance to the slides, but you can see the student work in real time and you can have students share each other's pair deck too, exactly, Robin. And, and you can have um, students compare, you can, you know, have students compare their work with one another. You can anonymize it so that, you know, no student is being put on the spot. So um, I think that uh, there are a lot of different tools out there, but it's about, you know, you figuring out what works best for whom and under what conditions, right? Because nothing's going to be perfect for everybody, right? So we are almost to our time. So we don't want you to leave without a call to action. We want to make sure that there's something that you do as a result. So think about some specific actions that you can take this week, something you can start on this week. And think about a person that you, you're going to tell. You're not going to only think about it, but think about a person that you can tell that can hold you accountable for doing that because we want to make sure that we're not just talking about equity, but we're making a difference and we're engaging in those actions that are gonna 
create equitable classrooms. And this is our contact information. So please uh, keep the conversation going. And we actually just started a Facebook group called Choosing to See Math Equity. So if you search that on Facebook, you can join, um, join our Facebook group and continue the conversation. Mm -hmm. And if you really like the book, we're asking you to go on Amazon and write a review for us, okay? All right. Thank you so much for presenting tonight, uh, Dr. Seda and, and uh, Dr. Brown. Um, we're, we're really, really grateful that, that you were here tonight. Um, and if you have any other questions for them, please feel free to reach out to both of them um, at their email addresses and, and their, their, their Twitter handles or join that Facebook group um, that they had mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, I just want to mention that uh, we do have a session coming up in two weeks. Um, and this is a session called Same But Different, a language-based routine to promote equity. Um, so continuing with kind of an equity focus. Uh, that is actually a, a grades K through eight session. Um, and that is being presented by uh, Dr. Sue Looney. So I hope some of you will be able to join us in two weeks. And I thank you for being here this evening. So long, everyone.